You're listening to Trending with Timory, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. National speaker Timory Millington has been a passionate advocate for life as long as she can remember, helping Gen X through Z answer the call to true feminism and authentic manhood. Timory holds a master's degree in biblical theology, and she covers this week's hottest stories from a Catholic worldview. You're listening to Trending with Timory. treat for you on trending today michael knowles of the michael knowles show which is featured on daily wire is with me we'll be talking about everything from transgenderism a person who's trying to marry themselves or might be you'll hear more about that we'll also be talking about his reversion to catholicism after becoming agnostic and atheist about the age of 13 so without further ado michael knowles So, Michael, thank you so much for being with us today. I'm really looking forward to, in some ways, the lark of talking about this pronoun insanity, but also talking about the seriousness of it today. Well, thank you for having me, and thank you for not asking my pronouns. I'm very pleased that you assumed my pronouns, and and you assumed correctly. You know, Michael, I was listening to an episode of Call Your Girlfriend, which is highly recommended, might I add, by the pro-abortion Planned Parenthood movement and there was this episode that they did called Pronoun Power and I can just see people lapping up this episode because it talks about how to navigate this pronoun difficulty for adults because you know teenagers really do well with it so we as adults should start implementing what they call an email signature that includes our pronouns. Have you heard about this? Not only have I heard about this I've actually seen this because I have friends who are in academia and they will forward me emails that they get, you know, faculty emails, or I'll just see them. And probably more often than not, it'll say, you know, Professor so-and-so of such and such department, preferred pronouns, he, him, his. And, And I think this has become really the rule rather than the exception. This gender ideology has totally taken over the universities. I think that's the epicenter. And then it's sort of built out into the culture from there. You know, I was looking at GLSEN, this pro-trans resource in, unfortunately, the middle schools and even the elementary schools, and it gives resources for students as how to do things such as use your pronouns in your email signature. And what's interesting is that this whole episode of Call Your Girlfriend kept talking about implementing an email signature, but it doesn't really clarify, like, how do you do this? Because I'm sitting here thinking, like, what, do you include Mr., Mrs., Miss? But they're actually saying, please refer to me as this, or this is what I go by. Oh, yes. It, now you have to include all of these terms. And of course, anybody can be offended by any of them. So there are some men who want to go by the term his. There are some men who obviously think that they're women, so they prefer to go by hers. But then there are some men who know that they are men who don't want to go by his. They want to go by they, which is a plural pronoun. But because of this gender ideology, it has been totally bastardized into a singular pronoun. So you could say they is walking down the street, which sounds like some kind of slang. But this is now the formal PC jargon being used in the academy. All of this stems from a central error which began decades ago, and it was the idea that somehow sex is different 
from gender. So we've always understood sex, there are men and women, but beginning really in earnest in the 1960s and 70s, there was a, the reapplication of the term gender, which is actually just a description of grammar. It's not a category of people. It's a category of grammar. You know, there are masculine and feminine words and they started to apply that to human beings. Now, why would they apply it to human beings when we already have a perfectly good a conceptual framework of sex. The reason for that is so that we could divorce sex from gender. So it's really a distinction without a difference, but it's a way for this gender ideology to pretend as though one can be a man, but in some secret metaphysical way, also at the same time, not really be a man. You're listening to Trending with Timory. That is Michael Knowles, The Daily Wire. You know, as we're talking about this separation between gender and sex in our conversation, I just this whole gender reveal party goes against the culture of transgenderism. I mean, it should be called a sex reveal party because there's no difference, as you're saying. Right. There is no difference at all. And also, according to the gender ideology, one can choose one's gender. It's actually a little confusing because on the one hand, part of the argument for gender ideology and and transgenderism is that people are born this way. So somebody is, is a man and they have a male body and they have male genitals and they have male chromosomes. But what they say is, I'm I'm actually born a woman, I just happen to be in a male body. So that is the argument that we would call the born this way argument. But now there's another argument which says, we're not born with any gender at all, but we choose our gender such that I could be a, a man and identify as male for 20 years of my life and then one day choose to identify as a woman. Even though I'm still a man, I I become identifying as female. And then maybe five years later, I choose to identify as male again. That's the, maybe we would call it the my body, my choice argument. But you can't have those two at the same time. Either the gender, which is really just the sex, is unchangeable and you're, you're born that way, or it doesn't really mean anything at all. But it leads to all of these uh, real contradictions, such that if you believe the the my body my choice version of it, then you can't have any such thing as a gender reveal party for your child because the child might not choose his gender until he's 12 or 13 years old. The other problem that is really coming up in this gender ideology is that you can't ever reconcile sex protections and gender protections. You see this in some of the civil rights legislation, like Title IX and Title. Uh, Title VII, which is, for instance, you know, in, in the 1960s and 70s, we enacted protections in this country for women. So Title IX, for instance, sets up separate sports leagues for women. Men are physically stronger than women, so women want to compete in their own sports leagues where they can get their own trophies and get their own scholarships. So that you have the, the women's sports league, and this is defined on the basis of sex. Now there are gender activists who are bringing a case all the way up to the Supreme Court that want to redefine sex as gender. But in redefining sex as gender, you totally undermine the purpose of protections for sex. So if sex means sex, then you get to have women's sports leagues. If sex means gender, then you can't have women's sports leagues because men get to compete against the women. We will have to choose as a country which of these definitions we're going to follow. And unfortunately, just looking at the way the culture is going, I fear that we're going to choose the fictional ideology of gender over the real biological fact of sex. 
Well, and just looking at the challenges, Michael, you know, people are saying now in the transgender community, they're conceding biology. So it's their way of kind of looking at people who hold to a traditional viewpoint of male and female, the human person. They say, well, yes, we concede gender or we concede biological sex. However, who you love is different from your biology and what you're supposedly supposed to, who you're supposedly supposed to love or how you're supposed to feel that how you feel, how you think in your biology, all these different things can be totally separate in the person. Well, what they're reaching toward is actually a, an almost true understanding of the human soul. I mean, their actual description of the soul is not true, but their intuition that human beings do have a soul, I think is correct. And what they're rebelling against is this sort of modern materialist atheist uh, ideology, which tells us that we're just a clump of cells no matter what age we are, and the soul is just imaginary. What these gender ideology people are saying is regardless of what my body says, my body could be fully male, but on some deeper level, in some metaphysical way, I am really a woman. And and so what what they're saying, except they can't use this language, is that my body is male, but my soul is female. Now, of course, Catholics and people who have uh, spent millennia thinking about this and debating and discerning the nature of the soul know that that cannot be true. So when you realize that transgenderism, the ideology, is really a religious movement, you you identify it with, uh, you realize it's not very new in the first place. It's actually quite old. It refers back to Gnostic dualism. It refers back to uh, theories that, Yeah, that's right. It refers back to old heresies that have been cast out, you know, be it Marcionism or Albigensianism or Gnostic dualism. I mean, there is nothing new under the sun, but unfortunately, because our culture has become so divorced from the religious and moral tradition that crafted our civilization, we are rediscovering these sorts of intuitions or these uh, delusions, and we think that they're brand new, but they're not. There have been answers to those in the past, but I don't think that students in school these days are reading a whole lot of Thomas Aquinas. Frankly, I don't think they're ever reading the Bible, so how could we expect that? You're listening to Trending with Timory. That is my guest, Michael Knowles. You know, Michael, looking at this whole debate, we have to bring religion into it. And this is what's so difficult is the conversation really shifts from biology to psychology to politics. And so people get confused as they're even talking about transgenderism because they don't know what language they're speaking. But at the heart of this is we can really appeal to the human person by bringing biology, sure, psychology and entering into the political realm of the importance of the person by talking about purpose, which comes with religion, essentially. Of course. Uh, You know, the uh, great patron saint of Hollywood conservatives is Andrew Breitbart, and Breitbart was fond of saying that politics is downstream of culture. And we also know that culture is downstream of religion. You know, the words culture and cult are related words, and what the culture worships will define that culture. So uh, these questions are not so easily separable. I mean, I think what some people want to say is, I only want to talk about biology, or I only want to talk about psychology, or I only want to talk about politics. But you, you can't separate those things, because really what we're talking about is reality. So regardless of whatever jargon you want to use from your gender studies class to biology, the question is, can a man become a woman simply by wishing very much to be a woman or by imagining that he is a woman? And he can't. That's not possible. There's no 
the biology is clear on that, sure, but so is our reason. I mean, so is our understanding of, of the nature of reality. And so we have to bring those things in. On the question of purpose, you, you have to ask yourself, I guess, the fundamental modern divide. Is there, is my life geared towards some ultimate end? Do I have a maker? Was I made for some purpose? Am I going somewhere? Or is this all just a tale told by an idiot full of sound and fury signifying nothing? Is life a big, crazy, tragic, cosmic accident? And am I only going to live to give myself as much material pleasure as I can? This, is a, this also is not a new idea. This idea has cropped up at varying periods throughout history. It's led to terrible outcomes. It's led to widespread misery. And I think it's up to us to debunk those kind of errors. But it's very difficult in a society that has become it ultimately in a religious sense, but, but certainly morally, ethically, and philosophically, very atrophied and very shallow. Well, and coming up here in Trending, Michael, we're going to be, I'm, my next show, I'm interviewing a plastic surgeon. He does a reconstructive surgery, and we're going to talk about the purpose of the body and how essentially if you were created with a person, purpose, essentially, that with that, we have limitations, which is why we see this crossover of STDs when we have too many sexual partners or rectal tearing when someone's engaging in anal sex. And we could go on and on that the purpose points to how the limitations fall off the bandwagon. And when we get back onto that purpose and that track, there's healing, there's peace, there's joy that ultimately that's what people are looking for. Of course. I mean, we know that the eyes have a purpose. My eyes have a purpose, which is to see. We know that my lungs have a purpose, which is to smoke cigars. No, I don't. It has other purposes too, but that's, that's one use of, of those organs as well. But uh, our body is geared towards something and not just the limited aims of those individual organs, but the human person generally. I, uh, you know, the, the catechism tells us that the purpose of life is to know God and enjoy him forever, to, to worship God. And so if, if we gear ourselves in that way, life starts to make sense. When you believe that it's all just an accident and you can do whatever you want with, to your body or to your soul or to your community or to your friends without any consequences, then things start to go awry. But unfortunately, in our modern and secular society, the only moral maxim anyone seems to agree on is, if it feels good, do it. What's unfortunate is that within our education system, in fact, the story came out from Virginia Tech that shows this within our education system, people who hold to a view of one man, one woman marriage or that there's a difference between men and women, that carpet's being pulled out from under them. A mom recently spoke out releasing an article and she's been all over the news at Penny Nance. She's actually the president and CEO of Concerned Women for America, really sharing the story, how she shows up at Virginia Tech for her youngest child's school orientation. And right then and there, she sees this entire introduce yourself by your gender, preferred gender pronouns, right there on every single badge of the new students present. Of course, it's actually bringing up a contradiction from the previous sexual revolution, which is the previous one was about uh, sexual orientation. Now they've moved on to gender identity. And there was a, a good a conservative guy who's homosexual, Andrew Sullivan, wrote an excellent piece on this where he said that the gender identity is erasing his sexual orientation. What is homosexuality? It's a, an attraction to people of the same sex. 
But homosexuality only exists if we can accept the reality of sexual difference. If there's no such thing as men or women, if, if men can be women and women can be men, and really there's no such thing as men or women in the first place, then there's no such thing as homosexuality. The same thing with feminism. You know, uh, there are a number of more hardline feminists who are now opposing gender ideology because they say gender ideology erases women. If men and women have no difference, then there's no such thing as feminism, which is a theory that attempts to describe what it is to be a woman rather than say allowing men who to define femininity or allowing say drag queens who are not dressing up as women, but are dressing up as a caricature of a woman to define femininity. Those are irreconcilable contradictions at the heart of this sexual revolution. Uh, uh, now, the way that the left is allowing this to persist is they have this ideology called intersectionality, which simply says, regardless of our differences, regardless of these contradictions, we must all band together as aggrieved victim groups to attack tradition, to attack the church, to attack stable institutions such as the nation. And forget about our differences for now. I think that is the, the way that these contradictory groups have been able to continue to work together, but that can't last forever. The differences and the contradictions are simply too glaring. It'll be interesting to see how this plays out. I understand there's a court case coming up really tying in the whole issue of Title VII, which was really implemented to help protect women in particular, but now it's being used and manipulated to really try to push this transgender movement. But there's a Supreme Court case that we may be seeing on this, correct, with a funeral home? That's right. The Harris funeral home case is going to be a major case. What happened is there's a guy who has a funeral home and he has an employee. The employee agreed to a certain dress code. Obviously, funeral homes are, are places of grief, and so you don't want to exacerbate a family's pain. So the men wear one thing, the women wear another thing. One day, after six years of working there, the employee comes in, and he's wearing a dress. He's a big, burly man, but he's wearing a dress. And so the head of the funeral home says, you can't do that. This is creating a distraction for grieving families. You have to wear the clothing that you agreed to wear on your dress code. And he said, no, no, I'm not going to do that anymore because I'm no longer a man. I am a woman. And so the head of the funeral home decided to prioritize his customers and their grief over the delusions of this employee. And so the employee is suing and it's going to go all the way up to the Supreme Court. I think oral arguments are set for October and they're going to have to decide, does sex mean sex or does sex mean gender identity. And if it means gender identity, then there is no more legal protection on any question of sex because it will hinge simply on the subjective feelings of people who either know what sex they are or have delusions. It will erase those protections and we will, we will find ourselves even further into the tyranny of subjectivism and feelings. What's at the heart on a different level of the story, completely separate, is just looking at, you know, all of us could be convicted here. Hearing this gentleman who's now insisting on dressing like a woman is going to be a spectacle, distracting people who are mourning. Geez, can't we stop putting ourselves at the center of every single debate? Like, we need this call to humility, which unless you have some form of faith, I don't know how this is going to be brought into the entire debate and just way of living. Well, this is unfortunately an increasing problem. There was just a poll out from the Wall Street Journal and NBC on what Americans value. 
And what it found out is Americans are much less religious now, especially younger Americans, and they're much less patriotic, though they still value hard work and tolerance, however you define tolerance. What's worrisome about that, I mean, we all like hard work, but what's worrisome about that is it means the only things that people are valuing now are values of the will rather than the intellect. So when it comes to hard work, I can just will that. When it comes to tolerance, I can will that. But when it comes to religion and patriotism, those are questions for the reason and for the intellect. And what we're saying is we we no longer can rely on our faculties of reason. We will simply will it. So if a man really, really, really wants to be a woman, he can simply will that. And this focus on the self and one's own will and willfulness and imposing his will on others is what you're seeing in this case. Who cares about the pain of grieving families if you wake up one day and you decide to wear a dress? It's a, a narcissistic culture, a culture of selfishness, and a culture that, that does not value anything outside of oneself, be it other people or other institutions or objective reality itself. That's Michael Knowles. We're talking about this transgender crisis, and I really want to tie it into this whole crisis over the purpose of sex, because we're seeing right now out of Hungary, there's this offer to anyone who will have three children, well, of course, married couples, that you will now get a $33,000 credit. Michael, have you seen this story and just this cry to fill up the population that is on the decline in Europe? Well, if I ever lose my job at the Daily Wire, I know exactly where I'm going because that sounds like the best job on earth. You get paid $33,000 to do something that for all of history, men have uh, ranked as probably their favorite activity. But Hungary has this real problem, which is their birth rate is incredibly low. I think the birth rate in Hungary is something like 1.5 or, or 1.57, right? And which is even lower than in the United States, though the United States repla- uh, birth rate is only one point seven or thereabouts, and replacement is at 2.1. So they're in real trouble. This is actually why you see uh, really most of the left and even a lot of the right uh, encouraging high levels of immigration and even encouraging illegal immigration is because the economy cannot sustain itself with such low birth rates. Uh, we've seem to have given up in a culture of contraception and a culture of abortion. We seem to have given up on our own countries. What's amazing, at least in the United States, I, I'm not sure if it, the same holds true for Hungary, though, though I suspect it very well might, is that in, in the U.S. we kill a million babies per year. We have about 3.5 million live births per year. If you just got rid of abortion and stopped killing all those babies every year, you would have no problem of birth rates. You would be at replacement rate or, or even above. The, the problem would go away, but we are unwilling to do that. And this gets back to our, our previous topic of selfishness and self-centeredness. We want what we want when we want it, and we don't want to have to deal with any inconveniences along the way, even our own children. So while I, I applaud Mr. Orban, I hope that his uh, policy works in Hungary. I don't think people are going to radically change their view of the culture and the country and the self simply for $33,000, generous as it is. I think the problem is a lot deeper. Well, and this is what's interesting. I've been following the story in Hungary, and they're offering a tremendous amount of tax incentives for families to have more children. And even places like Italy are offering land now because we're on such a decline of the population that at a certain point, how far do we go in offering tax incentives when in reality, we need to change the heart of the culture and the attitude toward having a family, getting married and making commitments and responsibilities in our lives? Of course. You know, I certainly think that the government has some role here 
in particular because the government controls education. So what we want to do is say that uh, our country needs to be moral and virtuous. So John Adams said that the Constitution is built for a moral and religious people and it's not fit for anyone else. But you do have to choose virtue. You have to choose to be virtuous. You can't just impose it by the sword or something like that. And so uh, very often these tax incentives or federal programs, often they they do more harm than good. The one place that the state can really get involved though is in education because the state does control most education in this country and education is a coercive act. You, you have to coerce young people into uh, being educated because education is the process of getting all of that virtue. So you can educate them in materialism and secularism and relativism and selfishness or you can educate them classically, traditionally in the virtues. And for the last 50 or 60 years in this country, students have not been permitted to read the Bible, not so much as read the Bible in public schools. This is the most important book that has ever been written. It has shaped entirely our civilization, even for people who are atheists or agnostics or other religions. No one can doubt the, the primacy of the Bible in our civilization, and yet it's not being taught. There, the state could take on an active role, and it would, ha- it would have to take on a traditional role, and it would have to take on a conservative role if we want to conserve the culture that we're losing so quickly. Timory will be right back. Send her a tweet at Timory. That's T-I-M-M-E-R-I-E. You're listening to Trending with Timory where morality and culture meet, offering an eternal perspective on today's hottest topics. I'm here with Michael Knowles. We're talking about just the crisis of transgenderism, the education crisis, and later on we'll be talking about this 36-year-old woman who threw herself a birthday party saying that she is marrying herself. We'll talk about that a little later. In the meantime, the Michael Knowles, who you probably know has come to incredible fame over the last few years with his political commentary and his book that came out, Reasons to Vote for a Democrat. But I want to talk about your story and return from the Catholicism of your childhood to agnosticism and just the journey back into the church. Tell us. So I was a cradle Catholic and always very interested in it. And I always did very well in CCD. And I was interested in other religions too. I mean, I read the Quran. I don't know, by the time I was 14 or something like that. I I always had a religious interest. And then around 13, I more or less would have called myself an atheist or an agnostic, and I left the church. I take most of the responsibility on myself. I think that I was an arrogant and intellectually prideful 13-year-old boy, and I was uh, taken in by a publishing movement called the New Atheists at that time, which I think is geared perfectly toward arrogant, intellectually prideful 13-year-old boys. And that movement was Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens and Daniel Dennett and Sam Harris, the God is not great crowd. And so I, I was taken in with that and I left the church. What I left was what I felt a childish religion. And in part, it's because the religion as it was presented to us was presented in a childish way. You had, obviously, they were only Novus Ordo Masses at that time. There was no Latin Mass that was, that was being offered, certainly not where I was. And this was before uh, Pope Benedict XVI's Motu Proprio, which expanded and 
re-permitted the traditional Latin mass. So it was a lot of acoustic guitars and really sappy, saccharine, insipid, often heretical 1970s pop hymns, largely written by that guy Dan Shute, who I don't think is going to go to hell, but he's going to spend a lot of time in purgatory for those terrible, terrible hymns. Bring it, Michael. I'm getting emails for this. I know it. Just you wait. (laughs) I'll forward them to you. (laughs) Send them my way. This is not to say that I no longer go to Novus Ordo masses, but when I do, I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I fill up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, the church. I uh, went away for about 10 years. By the time I got to college, I went to a very liberal college, and everybody was an atheist, and everybody was very smart. But I noticed that the smartest people were not atheists. They believed in God, the Orthodox Jews or Christians, and I noticed the very smartest people were Catholics or Eastern Orthodox, or they were on their way to becoming Catholics. And I thought, that's interesting. So I was presented with the ontological argument for God, first put together by St. Anselm of Canterbury, now most recently formulated by the Calvinist philosopher Alvin Plantinga. And the argument is simple enough. It's that God, it's not impossible that God exists. Therefore, God exists. There are a few more steps to it, but that's pretty much the broad strokes. And this argument convinces very few people, but it totally interested me. It really compelled me. And uh, you know, people have different ways back to the faith. Because I w- was led away by intellectual pride, I think I was led back through intellectual arguments. And then I found the other arguments for God. I read Uh, C.S. Lewis, Mere Christianity, all the other Lewis books, G.K. Chesterton, Hilaire Belloc, Owen Owen Barfield, those sort of people. And then by the time I graduated, I believed that God existed. And at this point, I was in New York. I found a little book on a table at an event called Coincidentally. And it was written by a Catholic priest. And uh, it was blurbed by William F. Buckley Jr. I, I happened to be the Buckley Fellow in college when I was there. And it was signed. And I noticed that the guy was right there in the city. And that that man was Father George Rutler. And his church was coincidentally the Church of St. Michael in Hell's Kitchen. And uh, the blurb on the front of the book said, it was a line from the poet uh, Alexander Pope. And it said, all nature is but art unknown to thee, all chance direction, which thou canst not see. And I took that is uh, quite a sign. You know, I think also written in the book is an evil generation looks for signs and wonders, but a stupid generation ignores signs and wonders. And I certainly saw them. And I went back to that church and everything clicked. I found a liturgy that I, I didn't know existed. It was reverent. It had Latin. It had chanting. It was beautiful. The priest wasn't facing me like a ham actor doing a soft shoe. The priest was facing away and leading us all as we witnessed the sacrifice of the mass and we worshiped God. It uh, was pro- profoundly affecting and it, uh, I, I would say, it was one of the handful of moments along the way that led me back to Mother Church. That's Michael Knowles. You're listening to Trending with Timory. You know, Michael, just hearing your story, I know even just this weekend, I went with my sisters in Novus Ordo Mass, and it's one of those parishes that doesn't do any kneeling during Mass, shall we say. And, you know, my sister and I and family, we kneel during the consecration and, and, of course, you know, the appropriate times. 
and it was so interesting because a gentleman came up to me outside the restroom and said, hey, you know, I noticed that you, Neil, he said, I always really appreciate seeing your family here because, you know, my father was really traditional Catholic. And he just kind of left that phrase hanging. And it just appeals to me because I think there are a lot of people who don't know what to do, recognize that their faith feels different, or maybe in just some of the way different parishes have really watered down just the reverence of the liturgy. They're struggling and they're wondering, why am I here? And then they just happen to see one person kneeling when you ought to. And it makes them ponder, well, maybe there's something more to this reverence. That's right. You know, the uh, theologian Richard Niebuhr had a description of so much of what we see at these modern Novus Ordo masses, which is, he said that we have a God without wrath leading a people without sin into a kingdom without judgment through the ministrations of a Christ without a cross. And that's often what it feels like. You go to mass and you say, what are we even here for? Everything has been so abstracted. The priest is telling shallow jokes and I don't know, he's trying to put on a show for us, a one-man show, rather than actually doing something serious, which uh, too often you don't find there. I was at a Novus Ordo Mass in Washington, D.C. about a month ago, and it was actually in Latin, largely. So I, I suspected it would be more reverent. And the priest during the homily more or less rewrote the gospel. He was uncomfortable with the hard truths that were in the gospel reading. So he sort of rewrote it to the politically correct modern leftist uh, ideology of what he wanted it to say. And that's too often what we're getting at these masses. Whereas when you go to a more traditional mass, you're, it's not that you're just reenacting something from the past. You, you are, as Chesterton described it, you are in the tradition, which isn't old. It's the newest thing you have because it's survived all of the ages. It's that vital. It's that real. And I, I do believe, you know, when I go to the Novus Ordo type masses and parishes, very often it'll all be baby boomers. The few people who actually attend will be rather old and they'll, they'll lecture me on how to attract the youths back to the church. But then when I go to the mass that I typically go to, which is the traditional Latin mass, it's all young people and it's completely full. The, probably the median age is about 25 and they've all got 10 kids somehow. I don't even know how mathematically that's possible, but they have that. I think young people who are raised in this mealy-mouthed, wishy-washy, hippy-dippy uh, religious movement of the self are longing for some orthodoxy. And, and we're finally seeing that, thankfully, thank God for that mood proprio from Pope Benedict in 2007. As those masses expand, I think that is the great hope to lead young people back to the church. And, you know, Michael, I have to tell you, it was a opening, eye-opening experience for me and a wake-up call because I grew up on the Novus Ordo. You know, I love my faith. You know, I have a master's degree in biblical theology, but always I'd end up at Mass ever since I was a child, a little frustrated, maybe by the music or by the fact that the priest changed the words of the consecration. You know, and we could go through all these different things that happen. And then my husband last year really wanted to go to the Latin Mass, the Trinitine Mass. And I kind of went dragging my feet. I was the typical, you know, it's so 
long. There's so much kneeling. And me willing to go over the first month or so, I found, well, wow, this is really long, but it's so peaceful. And it's a rest from the rest of the world. And I'm actually forced to pray more intensely. And everyone's respectful. And over the last year and a half, it's been an incredible journey and teaching experience for me. But also, I'm sure you'll attest to this, the level of preaching and actually the conversation about character development and sin is so profound from the pastors. Of course. I've found that the hour and a half long traditional Latin mass or the hour and 15 minute long mass goes by so much faster than the 40 minute Novus Ordo mass where we have to sing those sappy and heretical songs. The confusion is not just limited to the hymnody, it's all throughout the homilies. Perhaps there are some some good homilies that come out of it, but I think the rule is this confusion. Whereas typically when you go to a traditional Latin mass, the homilies are discussions of St. Thomas Aquinas, or they are real apologetics, real exegesis, real a real serious and sturdy faith. You know, uh, if people are raised and only brought up on shallow, feel-good, saccharine, sentimental faith, then when they face the culture, which is uniformly opposed to that faith, they're more likely to blow away because they don't have good roots to it. Whereas if you are formed, and, and real spiritual formation is rare these days, but I think it is increasing with the spread for instance, of serious liturgy. If you are formed in a serious way, you are much more likely to withstand the slings and arrows of an atheistic culture that's hostile to your faith. And if you're listening, you know, you may say, oh, the Latin mass, the people are so judgmental. You have to put up with the veil police. I could go on and on. Just give it a try. Maybe there is something to the reverence. And even if people are judgmental, what is the opposite and what is best for your soul in worship? Of course. I I personally love the mantilla. I wish I could wear one myself, but I think that would be playing into the transgender culture. So that's probably not a great idea. What I I like about the Latin mass though, because I, I think the One of the things I like about it, there's a caricature that everyone's very judgmental and they're all looking around, but I don't find that to be the case at all. I I don't think they're looking around at anybody other than at God, and they're witnessing the Blessed Sacrament, and they're focused on their own uh, failings. Very often the Latin Mass has confession going all the way up to the Eucharist, and there, unlike uh, many other parishes, people actually show up to the confessional to confess their sins before receiving the sacrament. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. You're listening to Trending with Timory. We're back with Michael Knowles, and we're talking about this topic of Title X funding and abortion. I am looking at this, Michael, and I'm saying, are you kidding me? The state of Washington would rather decline all Title X funding because they can't have any association to abortion than redirect all of that money to various organizations that can help with medical needs for people who desperately need it. This is one of the most brilliant moves that has come out of the Trump administration. I'm almost sorry I doubted him on defunding abortionists like Planned Parenthood. This totally came out of left field. And what it has done is force the pro-abortion movement to show its hand. What the pro-abortion movement always wants to say is, we don't, look, abortion's just one service, but we care about women's health. We care about 
condoms. We care about mammograms. We care about family planning. We care about all these things. And they don't. They just care about abortion. That's what it's for. Planned Parenthood exists to perform abortions. And left-wing states, in this case, such as Washington, are in, in the throes and in the grips of a radical pro-abortion movement. So what this move did was because President Trump was not able to rally support to defund abortionists like Planned Parenthood in the Congress and the Senate, those cowards don't want to touch the issue. What he did is he said, all right, you can have your family planning money through the Title X program, but you can't provide abortions and you can't refer people over to abortion providers. So you can have your Title X family planning money. You can do all the things that you say are really your priorities or you can kill babies. And those are, those are the two options. You got to pick one. Guess what Washington picked to kill babies. Guess what Planned Parenthood picked to kill babies, of course, because that's their whole business. So through the Title X program, you're looking at about a quarter of a billion dollars worth of funding every year. And when you look at Planned Parenthood, you know, it's really a drop in the bucket because Planned Parenthood gets about half a billion dollars of taxpayer money every year through various programs. But because of this Title X decision, Planned Parenthood is willingly defunding itself to the tune of $60 million a year. Now, it's not everything. It's really only a fraction of their funding, but it's a step in the right direction. And it's a step in the direction of forcing these radical pro-abortion activists, be they organizations like Planned Parenthood or Washington, to admit that their priority is killing babies, the health of mothers, the health of families be damned. Well, and what's so surprising to me, Michael, is that Washington State could have offered this funding to other clinics that do not provide abortion, that are full workup, OBGYN, mammograms, like everything that Planned Parenthood claims they cover, but maybe one clinic in the state offers mammograms. Last I knew in the state of California, I don't even think they do. And it was one day a week in LA, by the way. And just, it's ridiculous. So they'd rather not give any funding to anyone if they can't have their abortion in that state. Same thing with Planned Parenthood. They don't think there's any other sort of women's health. I mean, don't forget in the last five or six years, the very term women's health has been adopted by the left as a euphemism for abortion, which is really ironic. I mean, it's really ironic because half the people who are killed through abortion at least are women, are, are women and girls and females. So it doesn't really help their health, does it? Uh, that is the euphemism that we're talking about. You know, when you call your grandmother up, do you call her up and you say, hey, grandma, how you doing? And she says, well, you know, my friend died and I had a fall and I'm achy all over, but hey, at least I have my right to have an abortion. No, that's not, that's not what happens at all. Health is not only not the same as abortion, it's the opposite of abortion. But the radical left and the politicians they put in office in Washington, they don't care about women's health. Actually, they know that women have access to wonderful health care throughout the United States. So when they're going to demagogue on taxpayer funding and a federal program, they're going to go to where the controversy is. They're going to go to abortion. That's my guest, Michael Knowles. You're listening to Trending with Timory on the Modern Day Network. Shout out to all the new networks we just adopted across the country. I think we have six new stations just in the last month. So thanks for listening. I hope you enjoy the show. You can find more at radiotrending.com. Also more about my guest there. Michael, we're talking about really this individualism that is at the forefront of the culture. You know, we've seen it come through abortion. Mother Teresa warned that if we don't value the unborn, what else essentially will we devalue? And here 
here we've seen the implementation of really the ending of human life in its most vulnerable state at the end of life as well with physician-assisted suicide and euthanasia. And I think this whole thing ties into this article that came out of a 36-year-old single mom who threw herself a birthday, totally mocking marriage, kind of calling it her mock marriage to herself. It's very sad. She's, this is not the first woman to do this. She was apparently inspired by other women who have decided, I mean, they basically are marrying a mirror. And uh, other women who have not gotten married, who have not had luck in love, who have been divorced, and they'll marry themselves. My reaction to this story, I mean, obviously you want to laugh because it's so absurd, but my longer term reaction is one of sadness. I mean, this, this woman must be terribly lonely. We already have an epidemic of loneliness throughout the, the West. You, you see increasing rates of depression, anxiety, and suicidality, not just affecting women in their 30s, 40s, and 50s, not just affecting men who are killing themselves at extraordinarily high rates, but even teenage suicide is increasing. We are atomizing ourselves as a society. We are pulling out, and, and the right is responsible for this, not as much as the left, but the right has embraced this kind of language as well, which is the radical hyper individualism. I have no bonds to anybody. I only have my rights and I'm going to defend my rights and who cares what, whatever anybody else thinks. And it, this is a, a product of largely of the enlightenment and the playing out of politics since then, which is founding our politics on this idea of, of rights before anything else. When we know, conservatives tend to know, and people with religious bonds tend to know, that actually we're not born into the world with a whole bunch of rights. We're born into the world with bonds of love and friendship and family. And we're born with obligations and responsibilities. First of all, of course, to our parents, to our communities, to our country. We have a loyalty there. We have patriotism. And we have obligations toward our maker. We did not create our own lives. We are not responsible for giving ourselves life. Life is a gift. By the way, we won't have it forever. And we won't even have much say in when it ends. That life will be taken from us again in God's good time, and we will return to our maker for a particular judgment, and we will be called to account for what we did with this tremendous gift of life. Ironically, I think many modern people think that having any obligation is the worst thing in the world. Ever having to suffer through any minor inconvenience even is absolutely terrible, and it's not conducive to happiness. Actually, the opposite is true. Obligation, duty, responsibility, selflessness is where we will find joy. It is where we will find meaning in life. I forget who said it. It was either George Bernard Shaw, Voltaire, or Moliere who uh, said that uh, hell is the place where you have nothing to do but amuse yourself. Uh, that is, uh, that's the, the difference that we're seeing today. I mean, that is the flaw of, uh, of modernity. Well, I even look at it from the perspective of suffering. I have lots of people who have converted to Catholicism and you being a revert. This idea of suffering is often one of the most difficult parts for people to grasp. And in reality, suffering is where we see that union of the body and the soul and that the soul can be changed by the suffering of the body and that the body can be impacted by the suffering of the soul and how in that there's the opportunity for freedom and therefore growth and virtue. And that's what I wish people such as this 36-year-old woman could know instead 
instead of saying, well, I'm going to celebrate and kind of just shove it to anyone who's pro-marriage and really show my daughter that independence is fun and fun is at the heart of life, but actually suffering and transformation is what brings joy in many ways. Of course. We have this idea that suffering is morally the greatest evil you can imagine. I think it was C.S. Lewis who wrote that suffering doesn't have a moral quality. Suffering is a fact of life. We live in a world that has suffering because Adam sinned and sin pervaded the world and so death pervaded the world. What is moral is our reaction to suffering. We can either react to suffering in a way that brings us down into a spiral of self-pity and selfishness and self-centeredness, or you can react with grace. You can react with endurance and you can react with fortitude and with hope and with charity and, and love and faith. Obviously, that is the better answer. And if you're, even, even if you find yourself questioning your faith or you're an atheist or you're an agnostic, just from a very tangible, observable way and, and measurement, the people who live their lives for others, the people who bear their sufferings with grace are filled with joy. They, they are living a better life than those who spiral into selfishness. None of us admires selfish people. None of us aspires to be a selfish, self-pitying person. That should tell you something about the nature of suffering. Michael, where can people find more about you and your work? So speaking of spirals of selfishness and uh, self-centeredness, I am on Twitter.com, which is the, that's like Twitter is the hub of selfishness. I'm there at Michael J. Knowles. I have a show four days a week at the Daily Wire. That is the Michael Knowles show. You can catch it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, wherever, Facebook, YouTube. It's all over the internet. And I'll be doing a college speaking tour that's just starting this fall. So if you're anywhere around there, around the country, that'll be at the Young America's Foundation. Wonderful. And mention a couple of states that you'll be in coming up. So I'm heading over to Yale uh, in New Haven, Connecticut, and then I'm going to George Washington University, heading down to the University of Florida, going to Kentucky, going to Georgia, and coming right back to USC and, and Ohio State as well. Wonderful. So if you can, catch Michael on the road. He's doing incredible work and speaking to the tough moral issues of our time. If you want to learn more about trending, you can contact us at radiotrending.com and learn more about my guest there and listen to the episode if you didn't catch all of it on the road. This has been Trending with Timory. To book her to speak or learn more about her guests, visit radiotrending.com. You can listen to more of Trending via the podcast on iTunes, Google Play, or the iHeartRadio app, where you can share your favorite episodes. 